Do you know what time it is? It's time for the Workforce Show, where you will learn the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us. Uh, and today we have a special guest from North Carolina, but he works at, sometimes out of Washington, D.C. And so uh, we're going to have a well-rounded and uh, deep and exciting conversation. His name is Steve Bennett. He has a doctorate, and he works for a company called SAS. We pronounce it as SAS. You know, you know how it is. You know, it used to stand for something. Now it's just SAS. We pronounce it just as SAS. And we, you know, we're not the shoe company. We're not the airline. We are the analytics company that's been around for 43 years. But, but Cindy, thank you for uh, for hosting me today. I'm glad to be here. Steve has a very broad background in uh, AI and and in, in machine learning and digital analytics. But he also has a background in biology. And I'm going to let Steve tell you a little bit about his background when he was in college. Sure, sure. I grew up in southern New Mexico in the desert in, in a small town. And uh, uh, the reason I grew up there is my, my dad worked for the Army at White Sands Missile Range. And so I grew up uh, I grew up in a place where there was you know not a lot going on, small town in the desert. And so at a, at a young age, I really fell in love with science. I... Uh, you know, a lot of kids maybe were going to the mall, but uh, to do to spend their time. But my my buddy and I, we'd go out in the desert and uh, and blow things up using the chemistry we learned in high school. Things would probably get my parents in a lot of trouble today, but a great way for a couple of boys to learn science and and chemistry. I uh, had a, a the, the good fortune of having a couple of public school teachers in my high school. We I didn't know it, but we were in a pretty pretty poor school district, uh, but some outstanding public school teachers really ignited my passion to go into science as a, you know, as a career. So I went to Caltech, where, uh, where I got a degree in biology and a degree in chemistry, and then uh, went up the road from there in Southern California to Northern California, where I was uh, blessed to be able to go to Stanford and got a, a PhD in computational biology. So uh, that's a, a whole lot of words, but it just means taking life science problems and, and uh, using computers to try to solve them. You know, uh, one of the life science problems that uh, he dealt with, as I, as I understand it, tell me if I'm right or wrong, uh, is Gino, the human Gino, uh, it was at the time when they were just beginning to, to do this stuff. And then the, the effects and the impact of that on, on choices of individual patients on the medicine they take was is extraordinary. Well, right. So at the time I was finishing my, my PhD in the uh, you know, late 1990s into the early 2000s, the Human Genome Project was just finishing. And that was that, that big project to sequence all of the DNA for, for human beings. And then the, the real problem became, okay, we know what the sequences are for the DNA, but what do all these genes do? And how can we take what we've learned and create new medicines, new treatments for, for disease? And so my, my graduate work focused on learning what we could out of what we were getting from the genome to, to look for new ways to, to do something with that information to, to treat disease down the road. 
It was it was also a very exciting time, and it was a uh, a time that you showed what you're made of. Uh, you you care a lot about how people live and and the way they live, and and you pursued that. And I hear stories uh, about you know living in a rural town and having just yourself and your friends or brother or brother, and how. Uh, how the the excitement of the future uh, is created by by your by your isolation. There you begin to see aviation flight. You begin to see pharmaceutical. What? So you know you're you're exactly right. And there have been people who've written about the fact that uh, if if you live and grow up in places where you can see a very dark night sky and you can see clear stars at night. Those places tend to produce, you know, children and teenagers who are more curious about the universe because they can see it. And so as we continue to move in more urban directions, you know, more population live in urban areas than ever before. You know, that's a challenge for sparking curiosity about the universe because you can't take a walk where it's dark at night and and see the stars. It sounds like a simple thing, but, you know, I went on walks with my dad at night and, you know, you could see the Milky Way. It was pitch black. And that's a kind of part of the makeup for me in terms of why you know, why I fell in love with science. There was a lot of science and geology all around me, you know, astronomy, um, walking around in southern New Mexico just with my dad. New Mexico. I lived in Albuquerque in the northern part, and uh, and we had the same, not as, as steep as you had, but we had we could see the stars across the mountains, the right. mountains. Okay, so you, you graduated from school, and you went to work for a pharmaceutical company. So I was going to get ready to do that. I was starting to interview at pharmaceutical companies. And then right as I was thinking about transitioning from um, from graduate school into that industry, the events of September 11th, 2001 occurred. And that caused me to completely change my career. Instead of going to work in science or in life science or health, um, I wanted to go serve the nation in some way. And, uh, you know, funny story, being a, you know, 26, 27-year-old male, my first call was to my dad. And I said, I'm going to go join the Marines. My dad said, well, maybe with a PhD in computational biochemistry, you can come up with some other way to serve the nation. So, uh, you know, he kind of talked me off the cliff and I, I went to uh, to serve in Homeland Security uh, just about from the moment they opened their doors in 2003. So I uh, spent 13 years helping to try to uh, help the government do a better job preventing things like that from happening again. So when you were at DHS, and, and I remember when they started, it was, I had uh, a, a, a my friend or, or she was working for DHS in the human resource area. And uh, so I became a little bit familiar with all the confusion that was part of the startup of that. And you were tucked away someplace doing something else. And, and what was that something else that you were uh, hired to do? Well, yeah, you know, as we say, in the early days of DHS, it was great because there were no processes. And it was terrible because there were no processes. And, and so, I, you know, I was up at Fort Detrick working in uh, biological weapons, counterterrorism, sort of biodefense, given my life science background. And you remember those days people were sending anthrax around in the mail that fall. And so we were, we were really concerned about knowing where, were the, where was the right place to invest to keep Americans safe? What should we be doing out of all of the threats that were, you know, arrayed against us? Where should we be investing to make um, to make the most certain that we were keeping Americans safe. And so that was my first set of projects, something we called risk assessments, figuring out what we were at most at risk from. And we used large-scale, high-performance computational approaches to do that, but figuring out what we were most at risk from and then making sure that the senior leadership in the department could benefit from what we learned so that we were making sure we were doing the best with the money that the taxpayers entrusted us with for safeguarding Americans. 
Well, when you started, what, where, where was the risk? Well, the risk was, you know, some of the things you'd hear about today, right? We we're kind of always concerned about, you know, uh, you know uh, overseas terrorism and domestic terrorism and how they could use, you know, weapons of mass destruction uh, against you us. You were talking about that back then? Oh, yes. And even before then. Even before then. Yeah. Sadly, it's not new. I wish it were new. Sadly, oh, okay. it's not new. But uh, so that was the concern, though. We have limited resources as a government. The hard problem is figuring out where should we put those resources to make the biggest impact on safety and security. And so that was the first set of jobs that I had in DHS. I worked with an, just an amazingly brilliant group of people right from the beginning uh, all the way through the, the time that I left government. And you went to work for SAS. SAS. Did you start off as a uh, global practice leader? I did. Towards the end of my career in government before I left, we were increasingly looking to use data, lots of data around uh, health information to help um, help do a better job protecting the homeland. And so that's what we now call analytics, but we called it big data, a whole bunch of other things uh, in those days. But analytics now is the, you know, the ability to take all of that data and create insights that can help drive better decision making. So that's what we were doing right at the time that I was leaving government. We were doing that in, in the, the biodefense, biosurveillance space. And so when I left government, um, really, as you mentioned up front, my passion is is helping governments put their data to work to help keep people safe and to help serve citizens. And, uh, you know, at SAS, I get to do that not just for one agency, you know, DHS, but I get to help agencies all around the U.S. government and in other countries globally doing just that. So, um, you know, I feel like I'm still doing what uh, what I was made to do, which is uh, helping take data and, you know, apply these computational approaches to them to help government leaders make better decisions for their people. That's pretty straightforward. You give computational, a lot of analytics, a lot of computational data, and and here's here's your computational data, and here is the person making the decisions, and the decision has got to be right, right? Yes. <laughs> I, ideally, we would love for that decision to be perfect every time. But, you know, your example there highlights why analytics is so important. As, as humans, we don't do a very good job. Our brains aren't built to do a great job making the best decision when there's highly uncertain information. Uh, or when we receive information of different levels of quality. And so things like analytics that help organize data and help you understand it, they can make a they can make a huge difference in making those decisions as good as they can be. There's always some uncertainty, right? We can't predict the future, but we want to make sure we're making evidence-based decisions wherever we can. Back when you were in, in the health field, the biology, uh, uh, there, did you have to ask permission of individuals whether you could use their data and their information and analytics? Because you don't have that. Do you have that in the government? So, yes. So, the, so the always, you know, it, it may sound easy to just take data, learn things from it, and then make decisions. But but you're right. There's a lot of details that you've got to get right. And, and a big piece of that, you know, is the, the safety, security, and privacy of people's data. So if you're doing a if you're doing um, a study that requires data about people in a, in a health situation, you've got to get all kinds of agreements and uh, consent to use that data. And, and you have to be very clear about what you want to do with it. And government's just the same way. Um, unless you've got particular law enforcement reasons with, you know, let's say a warrant to get information, uh, then you have to abide by similar rules in government. We've got to make sure we're protecting the privacy and security of the data of Americans as well. And that if we're going to use data about Americans, that we're doing it in a way that is um, closely scoped and carefully described and transparent. So it's not just, hey, we're going to use computational stuff and we're going to learn things from data. You've got to make sure you're managing that data right. So were, were you in, in, in all affected by FISA laws? I mean, was FISA a factor in uh, the data that you collected? 
You know, uh, not as much where I was, but certainly was in other places in government for sure. Um, but all kinds of data. If you look globally now, um, you know, GDPR in Europe, the these laws that are created to protect uh, the privacy of, of data and similar laws likely, you know, coming in the United States soon. Um, those are things that are are good. We want to make sure we're protecting data, but they um, they do add challenges because it's not as easy to get data and, and work with it. I'm very curious about that because on one side you have the work for the good. On the other side, if you work for evil. Well, so right, you, you have to be careful that there's there's no ends justify the means, right? We never want to say, well, we're doing something for the public good, so we're going to go ahead and use data in a way that maybe we shouldn't, right? That's never the way you want to go about it as, a, as an open and transparent government. You want to make sure that you are um, doing the right thing, but also doing it in the right way. But don't you have to, um, to in collecting data, uh, don't you have a responsibility to, uh, to, to, in other words, do you share it with other people, other countries? Is, is data shared? And is that so? How do you protect the data that you have? Well, right. So, data sharing is kind of a big problem no matter what yeah. kind of sector you're in. And there's a lot of benefits to sharing data and that we all learn more when we're seeing information that's in other places. But, you know, modern techniques like artificial intelligence and machine learning can help us do the best with whatever data that we have, that we have access to. So not into this topic of artificial intelligence and cloud, et cetera, you start off with uh, computation and, da- and data analytics. And how do you use the other uh, technologies to help you in your work? You know, we think of uh, so artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm sure your listeners have heard those buzzwords. They're kind of all over the place uh, these days. But, you know, for us at SAS, we we have been working with machine learning and AI for a long time. It is not new. In fact, um, those terms really were first defined in 1956 and 1959. They've been around 60, 70 years. And they were called exactly that. And if you look at the definitions from uh, 1956, 1959, they matched pretty much the way we define AI and machine learning today. And so you may wonder, well, why all the buzz now? Yeah, why? Why, why does it feel like it's new if these technologies are 60, 70 years old? And the reason is kind of two things. Um, the, the first is that we now have a whole lot of data. And these techniques require a lot of data to train them. And so unless you've got a whole bunch of data that you can throw at these approaches, they don't really give you as much of a, of a benefit as they could. So we've got a lot of data now. So, for example, if you want to create an artificial intelligence system that recognizes cats in YouTube videos, guess what? We have lots of examples yeah, of cats in YouTube videos. Yes. The second reason why we're hearing about this a lot now is that our, our ability to do large-scale computation has gotten better. We have bigger computers that can operate faster. And so these models are very sophisticated, some of them, things like deep learning, which you've heard of in the news. Um, and so those sorts of approaches require a lot of computational horsepower, big computers to work. And so those two things, proliferation of data and the, the uh, increasing speed of computational power, that's made AI machine learning something that isn't just a research problem in the university, but is now something that we see on our, we can have on our phones and we can see, uh, we can see applications all, uh, all across uh, many sectors, not just, not just government. So you're saying that all of this works together to create what? So we, we talk about analytics. Um, the, analytics. So there's a definition for analytics that we, we love to talk about, and it's that you know, analytics is the science of transforming data into insights for decision-making. So when we talk about analytics, that term's been around for a little while, uh, it's all about that decision. If we're not helping a decision-maker make a decision better, faster, or cheaper, 
we would say it's a waste of time. And so that's what analytics is all about. It's about marshalling all of the power in, it, in, in the data and applying that towards making a decision better, faster, or cheaper. So AI and machine learning fits into that because we would consider AI and machine learning as one of a number of technologies that fall under that umbrella of analytics. So in the same way that analytics should be about making decisions better, so should AI and machine learning. It's all about helping somebody make a better decision. I understand that. So then how does it AI get involved? So AI machine learning help because they are good at solving problems that traditional analytics aren't good at solving. And so let me give you an example. So let's say you are trying to detect fraud in a government benefits program. And, you know, sadly, you know, any any government program that is giving away benefits, there are people who are going to try to take advantage of that, yep. unfortunately. I know. So let's say you've got a fraud examiner who's a government employee and they are trying to find benefits claims that are not legitimate so that they can reject them and save taxpayer money. Traditionally, a long time ago, what they would do is they would set up a bunch of business rules. They would say, if the claim is for more than $2,000, and if it comes from this business, which we know has a history of fraud, and, 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 if it satisfies all these rules, then we would say this thing is likely fraudulent. We're going to set it aside, and we're going to have our fraud examiners, investigators take a look at it. But the problem with that, particularly in an environment where there might be a thinking adversary, what is that adversary going to do? They're going to start to figure out what those rules are, and they're going to figure out how to evade them. And so you're always playing catch up as the government trying to write down the best rules to detect fraud. So machine learning turns that problem upside down. Instead of having the human write down the rules that find the fraud, we ask the data to tell us what the best rules are for finding the fraud. And the data in an automated way will tell us the best rules to separate things that are fraud from things that aren't. And so it's a complete reversal in thinking of the way we approach these analytics problems. But the goal is the same, to help that fraud examiner make a better decision as to what to do with these claims that could be fraudulent. So it's all about that decision. It's just that AI and machine learning is a separate set of technologies that may be a little bit better at doing some of these tasks than before. That's a great example, one that I understand, too, not because I've committed fraud, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's it's. I mean, every time I see something or hear something on television about somebody has uh, has committed fraud for Medicare and or taxes, and people are dead for twenty years, and somebody is collecting their taxes, right? Uh, you wonder why can't why can't the government do something so this doesn't be a problem? And and I guess you're on the trial track of finding something. Sure, right. We have limited resources in government, limited staff, limited people, limited time. And so we want to take those, let's take that same example, we want to take those fraud examiners and make them as effective as we can with their time at finding fraud to, to better protect taxpayer money, right? And so whatever tools we can put in their hands, analytics, which would include AI and machine learning, that's a powerful tool to make their time much more effective and efficient at finding fraud. That, you're right. You're staying in the right field. You're staying in the right track. You're going to be making good happen around the world. So, so with that in mind, what is the evil that you see coming on the, the you know, on the horizon and, and, and evil now? And is, do evil minds work as quickly as you as uh, your minds do? Like I'm an eternal optimist. I believe that the uh, the good guys, you know, that are that are that we care about democratic values and free society. I think that we we ultimately do and will prevail. But uh, but you're right. So with any technology, it could be used for good or for ill. And you can go back and pick any technology you want in the history of you know mankind, the invention of the wheel. It could be used to be for benefit or it could be used to you know to create things that, that aren't so good. 
So uh, we view technology as the same way. It is just another uh, another technological invention, and you know AI could be used for good. You know we can use it to help fight fraud. We can use it to help you know predict when equipment's going to fail. We can use it to you know to help um, optimize how hospital beds are used. All kinds of great applications of AI. But it could also be used for things that aren't as good. And we know that there are, you know, places around the world in which artificial intelligence are used for surveillance and to deprive people of their of their liberty. And so, like with any technology, there is a could you question and then there's a should you question. And this just comes down to the values of, of your society, right? Like with any technology, you know, as Americans, we we wrestle with, well, what's the right use of this technology in keeping with our values? So that values discussion has to happen up front. So um, you go around the world, I gather, and around the country especially, and you help governments look at what? So, you know, let's take AI machine learning as an example. We do analytics, you know, all over the place, but there's a lot of really powerful examples where AI and machine learning can make a difference, let's just say for government, right? So any place where you have limited resources and you're trying to optimize those resources, you, you know, get the most out of the resources you've got, those are great opportunities for AI and machine learning. We are, we're partnering with Lockheed Martin, for example, uh, on the F-35, which is the most advanced airframe to fly in the sky. Uh, we want to know. We want to be able to predict when that aircraft is going to have a maintenance problem before it happens, and so that's an, an area where machine learning and, um, and 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 AI has a big impact. Uh, similarly, for the the C one hundred and thirty, another important aircraft around the world, you know, where's the best place to put spare parts, and in what quantities around the world to make sure we keep those aircraft, you know, those aircraft flying. You know, on the health side, the FDA, you know, just down the road here in Washington, D.C., they're using artificial intelligence to be more proactive about understanding where their risks are of chemical contamination in the nation's uh, food supply. I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, the, the optimization of hospital bed use in hospital networks in countries in Europe. What are the best unemployment benefits to give to people who've lost their jobs at the right time? You know, how do I interpret a, a CT scan for cancer imaging to determine whether I should do chemotherapy or surgery? All kinds of real decisions that have real impacts for real people. Those can be greatly impacted by an effective use of these new technologies in AI and, and machine learning. Well, those are all very noble, and, and, and hopefully you will be able to solve all those problems, especially the beds. But what is the most significant, serious problem that you're dealing with with AI today and as you go around? What is the most demanding problem? You know, I, I think that one of the most demanding problems, I'd have to think about it. I'm not sure this would be the absolute top of the list, but the ability to take the resources that governments have around the world and best put them to use. We've got great public servants and civil servants and governments all around the world, and we want to make sure that with the limited people, the limited resources, the limited tools that they have, that we're doing the most with those people for the citizens that they serve. And so really just getting the most and efficient use out of, uh, out of our, our, our governments that we can, whether that's better fraud detection, you know, better use of equipment. Um, AI and machine learning can go a long way towards making our, our governments work better and work smarter. To that to that question, I want to add one quick question. We're running out of time. The state governments seem to be most challenged by efficient use of their resources and mm. and getting data. Uh, do you how do you work with state resources too? 
It's the same idea. Anywhere you've got problems that could benefit from the better ability to detect something that's out of the ordinary in your data so that you can act on it, you know, uh, opportunities to make the use of your resources more efficient, that, that those problems are, are you working with like, state mm-hmm. governments? As Absolutely. Well, and local governments and as local well. Governments? Cities. What's the best way to optimize how we do school bus routing to minimize the distance children have to walk to a bus stop? You can use these approaches at the very granular neighborhood level, uh, all the way up to large, difficult government problems like terrorism and fraud. But but on the scheme of things, on the, which from the, on the state and local, they're rather parochial questions, and on the federal level, they're. Well, no, we see the same challenges at the state level, you know, across many states. So states are struggle with, you know, tax compliance and tax gaps, making sure that they're collecting the revenue that uh, that the law says they should collect so they can provide services for citizens. States are worried about effective delivery of benefits and services like, you know, Medicaid or mental health services. So those kinds of challenges are are, are areas where analytics can help quite a, quite a bit. And, and so in our final questions, there are two parts, and you can answer them as long as and as carefully and as deeply as you like. Um, but before I ask those, I want everybody to know that you have four children uh, and a wife, though, Woodworking is a hobby, and your other hobbies. So you know, when I'm not helping SAS, you know, help governments around the world, uh, you know, I love getting out in my shop and building things out of wood. I'm, you know, I'm not as good as I wish I was, but uh, you know, we do so much with computers these days. It's fun to build something with my hands that I can look at when I'm done and say, "Hey, that thing really exists," rather than an email or a meeting. So I really yeah. enjoy building things, uh, you know, with my kids and and, uh, and and with family, which is fun. Or, you know, getting out on the soccer field and coaching youth soccer or, you know, helping out at church. A real human and a real American, and we thank you for all that you've done and all that you are. But um, on my final or final question, though, um, in in looking back over your, your life and your work, uh, what has been the most significant exp- time for you? Wow, that's a, I love that question. Um, in my career, I, I think the most significant thing for me was that first job in the Department of Homeland Security. I went from you know, being a scientist who was very good at my technical work to applying that in a way where I really felt as though I, I was helping to secure the nation. I, I really believe that our work in those days was uh, directly related to helping to keep Americans safe, and I'm still very proud of that so work. So what would you tell the listener who, who wants to, uh, to do something similar? or, or do, what, what do you tell them? You know, my mom was a teacher, and so I grew up in a home where education was highly valued. And so, my, you know, whatever you want to do, whether it's going to science like me or, or into government, um, education is so important. So whether it's your listeners directly or their children and their families, um, it is such a such a priority. And and so I would just encourage them to find something they're passionate about, and then learn everything they can. I thank you. You've been a tremendous guest, and I wish you could come back in, in time and tell us what you've been up to, uh, for sure. And um, and I thank you very much for making time out of your very busy schedule to be with us. Well, thank you, Cindy, for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at CareerCentralOnline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.